Welcome to the Schwartz on Sports podcast, hosted by Noah Schwartz. Hey everyone, welcome back to Schwartz on Sports. Uh, welcome to back to this week's episode. This is number eight. I can't believe I've done eight of these episodes already. It's pretty crazy. I've been doing this for like two months already. Um, but it's so great to be back. Got a packed show for today. We'll do football, talk some hoops to start, uh, finish with some baseball. So going to be a fun show. Uh, wherever you're listening to the pod right now, make sure you continue to subscribe. Uh, maybe it's on Spotify, whichever platform. Just continue to subscribe, follow me. And I appreciate all the support from all the listeners so far. It really means a lot. All right, so let's begin. I'm going to talk first about one of my favorite all-time NBA players and a guy I usually want to defend, but somebody who today I, I really have some criticism for. So let's let's start with that. So James Harden, and you may have heard this, as it's pretty much the lead story in the NBA uh, this week, with pre- even with preseason games beginning tomorrow on Friday. Uh, this has been the lead story of the week. So James Harden, you may have heard, did not show up to Rockets camp until a few days into it, and that was yesterday on Wednesday was the first time we'd heard that he was there. And prior to that, he had just basically been holding out, so, sort of like an NFL player would hold out a training camp not showing up and not reporting at all for any team-related functions uh, in Houston. And rather than being there, he had been in Las Vegas at clubs, and he had gone to a rapper's birthday party, little baby, apparently. He was at his birthday party and was hanging out with those people. And it's, you know, it's, it's it's bad enough that he was gone. It's bad enough that he was hanging out with those people. But what's worse is that he was doing it in the middle of a pandemic, obviously, when you're not supposed to be really doing anything like that. But Harden was out being very social, going out and partying. And so, you know, that's what he decided to do. And it led to him not being around. And we know that James has been very, very vocal, at least in the last maybe month or two, that he has wanted out of Houston. And it's been eight years that he was there. he's been there. And he's made the playoffs all eight times. He has been an MVP finalist, an MVP winner, first-team All-NBA, an All-Star every single season. I mean, he has truly been one of the greatest players in the league the last eight years since he got there. And on top of that, he's been one of the most revolutionary players in league history. I mean, you talk about what Steph Curry has done to make progress in terms of the three-point shot over his career. I think outside of Steph, nobody has been... Uh, more important in the three-point movement than Harden. With the step-backs and the shots off the dribble and the isolation scoring, Harden is truly one of a kind. I think he's one of the the 30 best players ever. He is so uniquely gifted, and he's one of my all-time favorites, probably in my all-time top 10, because I find him to be such a thrill to watch. I love the style he plays with. Um, I just think he's he's really been one of those guys who has led the movement towards where basketball is currently, and he will continue to push forward and make progress with with his offensive game because he's just so incredible. Um, But at the same time, I am a believer that you have to show up. And that's where I'll start with my criticism. You have to come to camp. You just have to come to camp. And you have to be around. And you have been, you've really been the leader of the Rockets for eight years. And you have really been pushed forward by Daryl Morey. He has given you a lot of wiggle room in terms of giving you stars. He gave you Chris Paul. He gave you Russell Westbrook. You had uh, Dwight Howard early on in your tenure there. He gave you Eric Gordon. 
And so at some point, you just have to continue to be a part of the culture, the good culture in Houston. And they have empowered you, obviously. But you can't not show up just because you want out and want to trade. And, and by the way, I, I, don't, I, don't criticize, I won't criticize Harden for wanting a trade. If he wants out of Houston and he wants to go on to greener pastures, that's fine. You know, I, I understand he's under contract, but if he wants to go elsewhere and try and win a championship with another team where he thinks he's got a better shot, I have no problem with that. And I'm not going to criticize him on that. I, I don't really care about the whole loyalty thing. That doesn't really matter to me. But it, you have to be there. And as long as they have not traded you yet, and I have not, I have not heard any rumors that, that Harden's getting traded anytime soon, then he's still got to show up. And until the day where, you know, the new, the new uh, GM, uh, Stone, Raphael Stone, makes that trade and the, the day he pushes that button and sends you wherever you want to go, or maybe it's not where you want to go, you have to be there. You have to be a leader. You have to be, you know, one of the best play. You have to be the best player on this team and you have to be around and you have to be present and try and help the Rockets win games. And to not show up and to be a distraction off the floor and be sending cryptic messages on social media the way he has, you just, you just can't do it. You have to be around. And like I said, I'm a hardened, I'm a hardened defender. I always have been. I think he's one of the greatest players ever. I think he's been unfairly criticized a lot of times about, about his playoff record and, and the things that he's done in big games. You know, he has had some moments where he hasn't shown up the way that we wanted him to. But at the same time, he's had plenty of moments where you look at his box, his, his box score numbers and what he's done. It's incredible. I still believe that he would have won the, would have won the championship in, in 2018 had uh, Chris Paul not injured himself at the end of Game 5. I still believe that, 100%. And so, you know, Harden does get criticized, in my opinion, unfairly. But this, it's just, it's ridiculous what he's doing. You can't be out partying in the middle of a pandemic. You can't be away from the team. You can't be doing stuff on social media like you have. You can't. You absolutely cannot. You have to be around. You have to be a leader. You have to do all that stuff until they make the trade. Because guess what? They're paying you millions and millions of dollars. You're on a $200 million extension, whatever it was when he signed it, and you're still under that deal, at least for now, with the Rockets, and they're paying you to be there and to be a part of this team. And you're not there. You haven't been there. And so at least he has arrived. I mean, he did show up. This was Wednesday he, sh he showed up. And we, we heard from uh, the new coach, Steven Silas, in a, in a press conference that he did say hello to Harden, who was, he, he saw him in the facility, so he, at least he's now there, and uh, he has to go through his coronavirus protocols now. He's got to take, like, six tests in a row that are negative before he can, you know, officially work out with the team and be a part of training camp. And games start in a week and a half. So Harden's got to get up to speed and back in shape and ready to go for the season quickly, or else he's just not going to be ready to, to, be, to get going when, when the season kicks off on the 22nd. He, he, he just might not be ready. And that's, that's unfortunate because everyone else from the team showed up. Everyone else from the team was there ready to go. And you weren't. And you're supposed to be the leader and the best player. And so that's really, it's a, it's a really bad thing for Harden to do. It's something that to me is actually legacy tarnishing. It's something that, you know, we'll, we'll look back on this in 20 years and we'll look at Harden's illustrious career and he'll have all these records and all these scoring marks and everything else that he's done. But we'll remember how he left Houston, especially if he doesn't win a championship. Maybe he goes, does go to Brooklyn, which is where he wants to go. Maybe he goes to Philadelphia, which is another place he's been willing to go. Maybe Milwaukee. I, I don't think they have the assets, but we've heard that's on the list. Maybe Miami. We'll see. But I, I, I think, especially if he doesn't win a championship, we're going to look back on this and 
remember how awful it was the way he, he left Houston and the way he was a total jerk to the new coach, Stephen Silas, who wasn't a part of this culture in the past, and a jerk to the new GM, Raphael Stone, who really wasn't a part of this culture, at least as the main guy in the past. There's no reason for this. There's no reason for this, Harden. And so as much as I love him, as much as I think he's an amazing, amazing talent and an all-time great, you just have to be around. I mean, I, I, I hate to say this, you know, multiple times, but I can't stress enough that they're paying you. They haven't fined you yet. They haven't even punished you for this. And you were not there up until yesterday, about a week after everyone else arrived and was ready for training camp. So not fair, not right. I understand they're going to trade you, James. I understand you want out. But for now, you need to be present and, and be a part of the Rockets team because that's that's who you're, that's where you are playing under contract right now. There, there's no doubt about it. All right, let me take a quick break. Uh, we'll do our Describe 5 for the week, pick five NFL games, and talk about them, make my predictions. And then I will talk about college football and the college football playoff and where my frustration lies within this crazy pandemic season. And then I'll get to baseball. Be right back on Schwartz on Sports. This episode of Schwartz on Sports is brought to you by Hoff and Pepper Hot Sauce. Handcrafted with farm fresh jalapenos and habaneros, Hoff's original hot sauce has gone on to win numerous awards and gain international recognition. Hoff and Pepper always strives to create sauces and seasonings that enhance flavors with balanced heat profiles. Every one of their handmade products is manufactured in Chattanooga, Tennessee and is naturally vegan and gluten-free. Shop today at hoffandpepper.com, and when you enter promo code BELLYUP at checkout, you'll save 10% off your purchase. Hey everyone, welcome back to Schwartz on Sports. I just talked about James Harden and his trouble as he wants out of Houston and what he's done to sort of make the Rockets culture horrible in recent weeks. But let's move on to football. It's going to be week 14 in the NFL. It starts tonight with a really big game, a rematch of the Super Bowl from a few years ago, Rams and Patriots. And Rams, to me, I've, I've been saying this for a while already, are the second best team in the NFC. And then New England, and as much as that team lacks talent, Bill Belichick has been putting on a coaching masterpiece so far this season. They just beat the Chargers 45-0 on Sunday, and Cam Newton threw for like 70 yards through the air. I mean, it was crazy. But they're 6-6. Six and six. They have a real shot of, of making a postseason run. I don't know how they're doing it, but, you know, I, I, I'm i a Jets fan, so I'm not one to like Tom Brady. I'm not one to like Bill Belichick or the Patriots. But he should garner some serious Coach of the Year consideration. I mean, he is doing something truly remarkable. That team has, has virtually no talent anywhere. The defense is bad. The receivers are bad. Cam Newton doesn't look very good. They're just really finding ways to win, and I never expected it, especially in a pandemic season where they had to change the offense and make it a power run game. Really impressive stuff by uh, by, by Bill Belichick. But let's get to the first game I want to talk about for this week, not the Rams and Patriots, but instead the Chiefs and Dolphins. This is a 1 p.m. CBS game Sunday. And this game to me is really interesting because it features probably the NFL's best offense, or maybe even definitely uh, the NFL's best offense, against maybe the best defense. So, as we know, Patrick Mahomes, the Chiefs, Tyree Kill, Andy Reid, Travis Kelsey, they can score the ball at will. And Mahomes can throw for 500 yards on any given day, and they can run the ball also with Clyde Edwards-Elair, and they have Le'Veon Bell now. 
they're really as good of an offense we've seen in the NFL in a long time. But then you have Miami. And Miami, head coached by Brian Flores, who I love, uh, he's done a great job. They were 1-3 at one point in the season, and now they're 8-4. And, and Tua Tagovailoa has been there for the last month or so. He's done a nice job as a rookie quarterback. And they are in prime position to make a playoff uh, run, possibly uh, even win this AFC East. I don't think they'll do it, but they have a shot. And so very impressive uh, from Brian Flores and the Dolphins also. And I think the biggest thing for this game, at least for the Dolphins, is they have to force turnovers. They're leading the league in this category. They have played 18 straight games going back to last season, the end of last year, where they forced a turnover. That's the most in the league, and that's how they've beaten you. They force turnovers, they get short fields, and they win by playing low-scoring, ball-control football games. They want to win the time of possession, they want to not turn it over, they want to turn you over, and they want to use that ferocious defense to limit your scoring and keep you down in the mid-teens, maybe low 20s. That's how they've been winning, at least recently. And the reason I think the Dolphins are going to have a rough time on Sunday is because that just won't work with Patrick Mahomes. Even when the Kansas City Chiefs have down offensive games, and we saw this on Sunday night last, last week against the Broncos, the Chiefs can still score close to 30 points, and that's on a down week. And, and the Chiefs, I think they had 22 points, I think it was, on Sunday, and they should have had another seven uh, because of the touchdown that they didn't call in the end zone for Tyreek Hill. I mean, they're just such a good offense that they're going to beat you in a variety of different ways scoring. They can beat you through the run, through the air. They have a good defense, too. And so that's why I think it's going to be a rough game for the Dolphins on Sunday. They're just not going to be able to force Mahomes into turnovers. He's the lowest interception guy in the league this year with just two of them, which is crazy. He's got over 30 touchdowns and two picks. And so maybe this game will be close. I'd maybe say maybe 10-point game if I was going to pick it. But I think uh, Kansas City knows how to win games like those where it's not necessarily a great matchup for them. They're playing a team that definitely can work to stop them. But even if they do limit that offense, it's not going to be enough where uh, Tua and the and the Dolphins offense can outscore them. It's just not going to happen. Chiefs are going to win. All right, second game, uh, a game of two playoff contenders, very surprisingly, I think. Cardinals and Giants, 1 p.m. Fox. Now, in this game, one team is very hot, maybe the hottest team in the league right now, and the other team is as cold as it gets. Uh, four straight wins for the New York Giants under Joe Judge and three straight losses for the Arizona Cardinals. They were 6-3, and three, and now they're 6-6. Six and six. Giants were at 1.1-7, and, and now they're 5-7 and seven and in first place in the NFC East. It's a crazy run by the Giants. I, just like I said, Bill Belichick and, and Brian Flores, two of the best coaches that we've seen this year, Joe Judge has to be in the conversation for Coach of the Year. He has come in and after eight weeks has completely turned the Giants around. They just shut down Russell Wilson for four quarters, held him to 10 points uh, on the board. That was a wild game on Sunday. I did not expect that result. And they did it with a backup quarterback and Colt McCoy. Crazy. And so this game has huge stakes on Sunday as well. Um, similar to the Dolphins-Chiefs game, both of these teams have a lot to play for. Chiefs-Dolphins, both teams, you know, Chiefs want to lock up the one seed, Dolphins want to get in the playoffs, Cardinals want to possibly even win the NFC West, if not make get a wild card, probably more likely to get a wild card, and the Giants want to continue to, uh, you know, win, win games and, and continue to create separation between them and Washington in the NFC East. Giants, they're tied with Washington right now, both teams are 5-7, and seven. 
but the Giants did win both their games uh, in the division against against the uh, Washington football team. So they have the tiebreaker there. So they just need to continue to keep winning in order to hold off uh, Alex Smith and Washington so that they can get in the playoffs. So this game is huge stakes. Arizona, to me, it's it's been hard because Kyler's been banged up. And so when Kyler Murray's hurt, it's, it's not easy for them to score because they're not going to run the ball enough to where it really matters. Chase Edmonds, who's been their best running back this year, in my opinion, a fantasy guy, I have him in fantasy in two weeks, actually, has been more of a receiving back and a guy who's not going to get the ball in on the ground much. He's not going to do much, you know, running through the ta- running behind the tackles, you know, running up the middle. It's not going to happen. And Kenyon Drake's been a little bit of a disappointment this year in terms of their run game. So they're not going to do that enough. Cliff Kingsbury is not going to run enough run plays, call enough run plays for it really to matter. They need to throw the ball. And the Giants, at least to me, have what it takes to shut that down. First of all, they've got arguably the NFL's best corner for this season in James Bradbury, a a great signing by Dave Gettleman. People criticize Dave Gettleman. That was a great signing. They can put him on DeAndre Hopkins. They can, he can shadow him all day. He'll follow him across the field. And that'll give at least the Giants a, a fighting chance against maybe the NFL's best wide receiver. And on top of that, the Giants have been one of the top defenses in the NFL recently. In, in the last three weeks, they're sixth in scoring defense. They just held down Russell Wilson. There's a real shot that the Giants can win this game. They're at home. Arizona has to fly. And my gut right now tells me to pick them. I mean, I'm just not going to bet against what Joe Judge has been able to instill in his football team. Patrick Graham has been arguably the NFL's best coordinator this year. He'll probably get a head coaching job next season if uh, teams are looking for a defensive guy. He might be the most intriguing option out there. And so I'm going to pick the Giants. I just think that they are going to be a little bit too much this week, especially with Kyler's shoulder banged up. And uh, you have Daniel Jones back for the Giants. I just think they'll win. Probably be a close game, maybe in the 20 somewhere. But I would pick the Giants because they have really learned how to win in the last month. And I got to give a lot of credit to the coaching staff on that. All right, Raiders-Colts. That's a 405 game from Vegas. Now, I got to say, in all eight episodes that I've done for this pod, and I've done Describe 5, I think, in every single episode. If not, maybe I missed one week. But I think every episode I've done this. This game, to me, is by far the hardest I've had to pick. I have zero idea what's going to happen on Sunday. Really. I mean, I really don't know. Because these are two strange, inconsistent football teams. Both teams are... They've had really hot stretches all year, and then they've had other stretches where they just look terrible. And if you, you look at the Vegas Raiders, after almost beating Kansas City on a Sunday night, that was three weeks ago, they lost that game right at the end, Travis Kelsey late touchdown. The next two games, they got absolutely routed by the Falcons on the road, and then they just played the Jets on Sunday, and it took the worst defensive play call in league history by Greg Williams and a Henry Ruggs touchdown from 50 yards away basically at the buzzer, for them to beat the winless, awful, pathetic Jets. So, awful. I mean, awful. truly an awful performance by the Raiders. I, I watched that whole game. I'm a Jets fan. My father's actually a Raiders fan. Shout out to you, Dad. And we watched that whole game, and the Jets should have won that game. I mean, I think everybody that saw the end of it, you know, they know how it went. But if not for that play call by Greg Williams, who ultimately got fired on Monday, the Raiders lose to the worst team in the league, and the Jets probably lose out on Trevor Lawrence. So I appreciate the fact that Henry Ruggs did score there at the end. But you can't you can't play that way if you're the Raiders. I mean, they're they're really not as good as people think or people thought that they were maybe a month ago. 
And then you have the Colts. And if you look at what they've done all season, they beat the Packers. But then you see them getting blown out by Tennessee. But then the other time they played Tennessee, they blew out Tennessee. And then last week, they just clawed to a close win against an awful football team in the Houston Texans. So you don't know what you're getting at either of these teams every single week. Sometimes they'll look great, like the, like the Raiders did when they almost beat the Kansas City Chiefs at home. And then they play terrible the next few weeks. And then you see the Colts, and they'll beat some playoff teams like the Packers and, and the Titans. But then they'll get blown out by the Titans the next week. I mean, it's just, it's just weird. So I don't really know what's going to happen in this game. But here's the one thing that I can really put, put a finger on and point to for this football game. The Raiders have an awful pass rush. That is one of their biggest flaws, if not their biggest flaw. They have no pass rush. They're 29th in the league in sacks. I believe they have 15 all year. And I do like what they have on defense. I like Cleland Farrell. Uh, I like Max Crosby on the defensive line. But for some reason, they've had trouble finishing and getting to the quarterback and making those plays. So they're 29th in the league in sacks. And the Colts have the, the, offensive, uh, the best offensive line in the NFL. Quentin Nelson and all the guys they have up there, they are the best offensive line in the NFL. Phillip Rivers hasn't been getting hit. That's why he's been so successful this season. Uh, he doesn't have to move around very much. I mean, he's not very mobile, obviously. But he he's really protected back there. And Matt Eberflus has led a top defense as the coordinator. They're a terrific defense, a top 10 defense, maybe even in the top five. And I just think that will be a little bit too much for the Raiders. Uh, they, lo- they lost two of their last three, and I think that continues this week. Colts would be 9-4 and four with a win this week, and that would put them in a really good position. Even if they don't win the division, and it's been back and forth with the Titans for at least a month already, so I don't know about that, but they should be a playoff team if they can win and get to 9-4. and four. All right, Sunday Night Football. This, this should be a good one. Bills and Steelers. And I have to give myself credit. I do. Last week I led the show, if you listened, and I started with a rant on the Steelers. And I basically said, this was, this was the day after they played the Ravens on that Wednesday night game. And Robert Griffin was the quarterback. There was no Lamar Jackson. They really had none of the running backs playing besides Gus Edwards. And I started the show and I said, the COVID Ravens almost beat the Steelers. And if you look at the Steelers all season... They've, almost, they've been almost beat by a number of bad teams. I mean, they almost lost to Dallas. Uh, the Giants almost beat them in the first week of the season. I mean, they have had some really awful performances where they've snuck out, snuck out of the game, uh, those games with wins. And it's surprising because, you know, it's hard to win one-possession games in the NFL, but they were 6-0. and So it just shows you that the Steelers knew how to win late at the end. But I did say that they were a lot worse than their 11-0 record would tell you. And I was right on that. They just lost on Monday night to the Washington football team. Uh, it was a huge win for Alex Smith and the Washington football team. They won in Pittsburgh, and it really did uh, keep them alive in the NFC East. And so Pittsburgh's now 11-1 and and a chance to fall out of the top spot in the AFC. Kansas City's also 11-1, and so they're going to be fighting uh, for home field advantage in the first round by for the next month. And so I don't think Pittsburgh's a Super Bowl contender. I, I hate to say that because if you start 11-0, and you should be in that conversation. But I just don't think that they're one of the top teams. I, I would put them, if I think about it, if I was thinking about it right now, I would say that they're at best the fourth or fifth best team in the league. I mean, that's at best. And th- their record doesn't show you that, but that's just the way that they've looked. And on top of that, they're now a lot more banged up than they were because Bud Dupree, who was arguably their third best player on defense after Minka Fitzpatrick and TJ Watt, is out for the season. And he's a Pro Bowl level player out of Kentucky. Phenomenal, phenomenal linebacker. He's now out for the season. Their other first-round pick from a year ago 
in Devin Bush is out for the season, also at linebacker. So the offense, to me, is dry. They don't do a whole lot outside of deep shots and underneath passes. They can't run the ball. They have a bunch of running backs, and none of them are that good. And then they have injuries, especially at linebacker. So I, I don't think they're a Super Bowl threat. And Buffalo, on the other hand, is playing its best football of the season. Josh Allen, and, and I'm a, I'm a Josh, I was a Josh Allen critic for his first two seasons. I, I didn't think he was legit. Oh, he's legit. This is what he did on Monday night against the very, very good 49er defense. 375 and four touchdowns. No picks. Wow. Bills, Bills won. They're 9-3. and three, And Josh Allen is playing like one of the top MVP candidates. Uh, I think the Bills are going to win. I do. They're at home. This is a big game. Sunday night football. They rarely play in Buffalo in primetime games like that. And this is a chance for in, in front of everyone, in front of the, the whole nation watching, for the Bills to show that they are the second best team in the AFC. I think everybody knows it's Kansas City, but now that the Steelers lost last week, I think there's some doubt about where they fall in that in those rankings. And you have Tennessee who's in that conversation and the Browns were in that conversation, but I think the Bills can you know mark their stamp and mark their territory in the AFC if they can win Sunday night, and I think they will. Mike Tomlin has been ripping his team despite being 11 and 1, and I think he'll continue doing that. Because it seems like it's all falling apart. They will fall to 11-2 with their second straight loss. All right, last game I want to talk about. This is a good one, Monday night. Ravens and Browns on ESPN. Last week, and you, you probably saw, that was the best win for the Browns in a decade. Maybe more. They haven't been, the, been in the playoffs since 2007, so that's 13 years. And I don't know if they've had a win since then that's been as important as the one they had on Sunday against Tennessee. I know you look at the final score and you say, oh, they won 41-35. It was close. Yeah, but they led. They had 37 points at the half. They were up by 31 at, at halftime. I mean, they were just blowing out the Tennessee Titans. And then they got into the second half and they sort of took their foot off the gas a little bit and they played more conservatively in terms of their play calling on offense. And it led to Tennessee scoring a bunch of touchdowns and getting back in the game. But it wasn't as close as the final score would tell you. And Baker Mayfield had his best game on top of the team. It was the team's best game, but it was it was Baker's best game of his career. Uh, he threw for over 300 yards, four touchdowns in the first half. He was excellent. And I have to give Baker this. One of the things that really annoyed me about Baker Mayfield in the first few seasons was he never seemed to be really involved in the Browns as a group. Like, I always felt he was kind of an isolated kid a guy who was really interested in doing his commercials and being famous, but he never seemed like he was willing to go into trenches with his teammates and try and go win a tough football game. And he seems to be much more focused on being a leader and uh, being the best player on the team as the quarterback and the face of the franchise. He has really seemed to be more focused on football and doing that in the last maybe month or two, maybe even all season, I can say, but especially recently. And I think that's one reason why I've been... Um, I've been critical of Baker in the past, but I'm, I'm definitely happy with the direction he's going now. And as much as I say that, I just don't think they're going to beat the Ravens on Monday. I just don't. I think the Browns should be the favorite in this game. They're 9-3. and three. The, the, Brown, the, the Ravens are 7-5. and five. They, So the Browns should be the favorite. They're at home. But for some reason, I'm being pulled the other way in this game. I just think, I think the, the Ravens are going to win it. Um, I, I, look at, I look at these two clubs, and I know they're division rivals, and the NFC North is always physical and tough. And these teams play very similar styles. Both teams want to run the ball. They're the two best running teams in the league, yards per game-wise. Both teams want to play with a lead. Both teams want to control the football, win the time of possession battle. And they want to rely on their quarterbacks to just make the throws they have to make. 
But it all starts with the run game. It starts with Nick Chubb. It starts with Kareem Hunt for Cleveland. And then, it, and then on the other side, it starts with Lamar's running, Lamar Jackson's running. And you have J.K. Dobbins and Edwards and Mark Ingram, and you throw all those guys into it, and that's how they want to play. They don't want to throw the ball 40, 50 times a game. It, neither team does. It's just not their style. But I think the Ravens play that style a little bit better than the Browns do. They're the number one rushing team. They ran for over 300 yards the other day against the, the uh, Dallas Cowboys. And it was all kind of falling apart for the Ravens. They had COVID. They had lost some games they should have won. And they were 6-5. and five, And they beat Dallas. And I think, to me, that can be the game where it gets them rolling. And I actually think they have a real shot to run the table, win their last four games, get to 11-5, and five, and be maybe the toughest wildcard team in the NFL this season. So I'm going to pick the Ravens. I think this is the big game for them where they can sort of uh, get themselves back on track after the Dallas game and win their last uh, three games and get into the postseason. All right, I'll be right back. Uh, that was my described five for the week. A lot of good matchups this week. There was actually some good matchups I didn't even talk about. But you have Chiefs-Dolphins at 1 p.m. CBS. I think the Chiefs will win. You have Cardinals-Giants, a huge NFC playoff race game. 1 p.m. Fox, I think the Giants win at home. You have Colts-Raiders at 4.05. Two inconsistent teams, but I think the Colts, with the great offensive line and defense that they have, will be a little bit too much. Uh, you have the Steelers and Bills on Sunday night, and I think this is the Bills coming out party as a Super Bowl threat. And then you have Ravens and Browns on Monday night, and despite all that the Browns have done recently with their win over Tennessee and the 9-3 record, I think the Ravens will pull off a slight upset on Monday night. I'll be right back with Shorts on Sports. We're going to get to some college football and some baseball to wrap up the show. This episode of Schwartz on Sports is brought to you by Invader Coffee. Invader Coffee is an ultra-premium, veteran-owned coffee company, proudly delivering only the best coffee your hard-earned money can buy. They aim to serve only the highest quality organic air-roasted coffee beans sourced from free trade farms all over the world. They keep things simple, the best coffee at an affordable price in order to provide you with the value you deserve for your morning boost. 100% fair trade, 100% organic coffee beans, 100% air roasted, 100% money back guarantee. Visit invadercoffee.com and enter promo code BELLYUP at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Alright everyone, welcome back to Schwartz on Sports. Going to wrap up the show today with some college football and baseball, and then I'll do my number one performer of the week. So, I have to say, this college football season has been very frustrating to watch. There's been so many cancellations and postponements of these games. Teams are getting COVID. Players can't play. They have to go through these long quarantine periods. It has been a big frustration of mine to watch this college football season because... Half the teams, you're not even seeing them play because their games are getting canceled. So it has really not been the best season, and I wish it would just get a little bit better, but I don't really foresee that. And here's where my biggest frustration lies. And, and by the way, I am a huge proponent of an 18 college football playoff. I think the 14 thing is insane. The fact that they haven't changed that rule yet is just, I don't even understand it. It makes no sense to me. We need eight teams in the playoff. It's the best way. But where we are right now is that I believe we have five teams that have a legit shot of making the playoff. Number one, you have Alabama. Number two, you have Clemson. Number three, you have Notre Dame. Number four, you have Ohio State. And number five, you have Florida. 
I hate to I hate to put Texas A and M and take them out of this conversation, but uh, they aren't going to get a chance to play in the SEC title game, so I'm going to throw them out. So those are my five teams: Bama, Clemson, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Florida. Those are the five teams, and I think all the all five of those teams have a real shot of getting in. And for Florida, they're they're the one that has the toughest path, but all they really have to do is beat Alabama in the SEC title game in a couple in a couple a week and a half now. Um and, and that's really their way of getting in. And so I'm looking at this and, and I look at the way that I think it will all go down. And I think that Clemson is gonna beat Notre Dame in the ACC title game. I think Florida has a real shot to beat Alabama in the SEC title game. And then I think that as long as Clemson can win, they'll be in. I think as long as Florida can win, they'll be in. Bama should be in despite a loss. And Notre Dame should be in despite a loss, even if they lose to Clemson. And so then it leaves me Ohio State. And as many people may have saw, uh, seen earlier this week, the game that Ohio State was supposed to play against big rival Michigan was canceled. It is the third game that Ohio State was supposed to play in this year that got put off. And they're probably not going to ever make up the Michigan game. There's no reason to. But the big thing is, is that the Big Ten had a rule in place prior to the season that every team had to play at least six games in this shortened season to be eligible for the Big Ten title game. And Ohio State had only played five. This was supposed to be their sixth this week against Michigan. And obviously it was canceled, and so they had to change that rule. It is now five games that you have to play in order to be in the playoff, or to be, to be in the, in the uh, title game. And so... And so Ohio State's going to have a chance to win the Big Ten and play against Northwestern in a couple weeks. And so they'll probably beat Northwestern. But here's the thing. Because every team, or at least a lot of these teams, have played different amounts of games, and some teams have played full seasons and some teams have definitely not, including Ohio State, I would say that right now I would put in Ohio State, or I would put in Florida over Ohio State, even if Ohio State is undefeated, and wins the Big Ten. And the reason I say that is this. They've only played five games to this point. If they beat Northwestern, that's six games. If they're 6-0 and going into the playoff, typically that would be enough. But in this season, when you have a lot of teams that have a real shot, and Florida would be a one-loss SEC champion if they beat Alabama, then I would put Florida in because they played nine or ten games and lost only once out of all those games, and that was early in the season. I would put them in over Ohio State. And so I think Ohio State has gotten no favors from the Big Ten this year. They were forced to play a shortened schedule. They had all these cancellations. The games were never really made up. They didn't have a chance to to get any other opponents that they could face. And so now they're going to pay for that, I think, as long as Florida can beat Alabama. And maybe they won't. Maybe this won't be a discussion. But I was thinking about this earlier this week, and this is really what came to my mind. Why would I throw an Ohio State in there over Florida who played a full season, was one of the best teams in the country from start to finish from late, or I guess you could say late September this year onwards, whereas Ohio State was good from maybe the beginning of November, late October onwards, and they had all these cancellations. So I am going to, I would say that Florida, if they beat Alabama, deserves to be in over Ohio State. Ohio State would be undefeated, they would be a Big Ten champion, but I don't think that should matter. They played less games, they did not, to me, uh, showed that they were the one of the four best teams over the course of the entire season the way that Florida did. And Alabama, to me, the number one team in the country, the most dominant team from start to finish, even if they lose to Florida in the SEC title game, 
deserves to be in because they'd be a one-loss a one-loss team that was really great from the beginning. And then you have Clemson and Notre Dame, and if Clemson can beat Notre Dame, which I think that they I think they will. The game was in overtime the first time and there was no Trevor Lawrence. I think Clemson will win this time. Clemson would be a one-loss ACC champion. Okay, they deserve to be in. And Notre Dame would be a one-loss ACC finalist, a team that was ranked second in the country for much of the season. And Ian Book was one of the best players in the country. Brian Kelly had a great program, a great defense. There's no reason why they shouldn't be in as a one-loss team that was a conference finalist. And then you have Florida, and they would be an SEC champion if they could beat Bama. They all deserve to be there. Now, if this goes to an 18 playoff next year or in the future, then of course, in this situation, it wouldn't matter. All five teams would be in and it would be no big deal. But that's not going to be this that way this season. It's just not. And so Ohio State may get passed over. If I was on the committee, I would pass them over. Maybe it won't happen. Maybe it will. Maybe Florida will just lose to Bama and it won't matter. But if it turns out, and this is the scenario, I would say that Ohio State deserves to get passed over. And and again, you have to remember that college football is the sport where everybody just looks ahead. You know, we, we don't we don't think about what's going to happen this week. We always think about what's going to happen in two weeks, a month, three months. I mean, that's how we think in college football. We always look ahead to the championship games. We always look ahead to the big matchups of ranked teams. We never just look at who the opponent is going to be this week because most of those games are routes anyway if the, if the talent is not anywhere near the same. So I'm looking ahead to these championship games and, and in the playoff. And I just think that from start to finish of this season, Florida, if they're an SEC, type, uh, SEC champion, deserves to be in the playoff a little bit more than Ohio State, despite the fact that Ohio State was undefeated. They never lost. They are a, a conference champion, but they didn't do it for long enough to me. And that's not necessarily their fault. It's just the way the schedule breaks during COVID. And so Florida, in my opinion, should get in over Ohio State. Maybe it doesn't play out this way, but if it, it, if it did... That's the four teams I'd put in. Number one, Bama, or uh, no, sorry, num- number one, um, number one, Clemson, number two, Florida, number three, Notre Dame, and number four, Alabama. That that would be my four. All right, now let's finish up the show today with some baseball. Um, now, I don't know who saw this yesterday. This was a rumor that was reported first by Ken Rosenthal, and apparently the Mets are very in on catcher James McCann. Now, I'm a Mets fan. Everybody knows that. Diehard Mets fan my whole life. And I got to be honest with you, I know they they have Steve Cohen now, and I know that this team's going to want to spend a lot of money. I don't like this deal. Now, it's not official yet, so maybe this won't happen, but it's been widely reported that they're close to finishing this up and that he'll be the next catcher of the Mets. It's a four-year deal. And that's my problem with it. Now, James McCann is a good player, a very good player. If you look at his numbers from recent seasons, hit seven homers in the shortened season last year, hit 18 the year before that, was an all-star in 2019. He's a very, very good catcher. But he's 30 years old. He's never really been a full-time guy. He's never played more than 120 games. He's 30 years old. He's only had a couple of good offensive seasons in his entire career. He's been around for six or seven years already. And at 30 years old, his defense is only going to fall off from here. His offense isn't getting any better than it has been in the past. And for four years of paying for that, that's a long time. I mean, the Mets just had Wilson Ramos as the catcher the last two seasons. And he's already in his 30s too. And after a year and a half, everyone was like, we got to get rid of this guy. Like, he's just not that good anymore. There's no reason to keep him around. 
And that's the same thing here with McCann. I feel like you're going to have him for a year or two, and halfway through this contract, everyone's just going to be like, "How do you play this? How do you play this guy every day?" I mean, he's just not that good. And so that's that's my thing. Um, I would actually like the Mets to try and fall back on another option if this contract doesn't go shorter. Now, if the Mets can get McCann for two years at twenty million, okay, all of a sudden it's a totally different conversation. But four years at forty million dollars or so is a lot of money and a lot of time you're paying an average player. If the Mets don't, if the Mets don't decide to uh, to go that route, I would I would choose another option. Yadier Molina's out there. He he's a good catcher. Mike Zanino had a good playoff run uh, with the Rays to the World Series. Austin Romine's been a good player in the past. Tyler Flowers has been a good player in the past. All those guys would be cheaper. The contracts would be far shorter. And you could get decent production out of them, maybe not to the extent of what you're getting early on with McCann, but at the same time, there's no reason to pay a guy for four years when he his talent and his production just doesn't warrant uh, that type of a contract. I get the Mets have money to spend. I get they have the extra resources now. But at the same time, you have to make moves that are smart. And as a Mets fan, I just don't think this move is very smart. I feel like it's kind of a splurge. Um, I wasn't a fan of the team going after the other catcher on the market, JT Realmuto, who probably $100 million or more. Not a fan of that. Not a fan of this contract with McCann either. So we'll see how it goes down. Again, it all has to be finalized and maybe they'll go with a shorter deal. Who who knows? But I would love for them to ultimately pass on McCann if uh, they can't figure this out and, and get a two or three year deal here because four years is, is just too long. You just can't pay a guy that long for his level of production at, at, at his age of 30. For a catcher, I mean, you just can't do it. So I know Mets fans out there were a little scared when we saw this rumor yesterday. Just be patient, relax. Hopefully it all works out for us, but maybe it won't. And if they if it doesn't, they should move in a, in a different direction. There's not a great catching market out there outside of Real Muto, but there are serviceable players, and I think they can go find one on the cheap for maybe a year or two rather than paying a guy for the long term. All right, last segment of the day. As always, Noah's uh, number one performer of the week. And this week, to me, was not uh, someone that did anything specific on the field, but someone who's done great work for an organization for a long time, and we heard a cool story about him yesterday that was reported, so I'll get to this. Um, J.J. Barea, the longtime NBA point guard, he's been with the Mavericks for many, many years. He signed a contract to re-sign with Dallas over the offseason. This was like a month ago. And it was a one-year deal worth two and a half to two point six million. It's just the veterans' minimum one-year deal. And Beret is thirty-six. He's been around for forever. He's been around since two thousand and seven, I think two thousand and six maybe. And he's been with the Mavericks for most of that time. He spent only a few years in elsewhere in Minnesota, but most of his career has been in Dallas. And they re-signed him for this one-year deal. He's basically just a veteran leader at this point for Mark Cuban's team. And then apparently today they're going to cut him. And as unfortunate as it is that they're going to cut him, a guy who's loved in the locker room and he's a fan favorite, it makes sense because they have extra guaranteed contracts that they have and they need to get rid of somebody, and Beret is the worst player out there. But apparently what we found out was that the owner, Mark Cuban, decided to give Berea this contract just as a reward. He signed it, or he, he signed it knowing that he was going to cut him very soon after, but gave him the two, $2.6 anyway just to reward him and be as a, as a token of appreciation for the 11 or 12 years that he gave to the Mavericks franchise. So that is really cool. You don't really see owners giving guys free money like that. At least they don't want to give guys free money like that. And that's exactly what um, Cuban did in the situation. Gives Berea the money, knew he was going to cut him anyway, 
but gave it to him just because he wanted to thank him for all the years. And that's really, really cool. I also heard that Cuban is very keen on giving Berea a spot within the organization after he retires. Similar to what he said to Dirk Nowitzki when he retired a year and a half, or yeah, like a year and a half ago. He said, Dirk, you've got a spot in the organization as long as you live. And I think that it'll be a similar deal for Berea. Uh, won a championship with Dallas in 2011, was a huge part of that team as a, a, a pinch, a guy who can come in as a starter in a pinch, was mostly a, a scorer off the bench, but a guy who's beloved by that franchise. He'll probably be there as an assistant coach at first, or maybe as a player development guy, but someone who's had a long history with that team and will continue to do so as long as he finds a spot for him in, in the organization. And I know that Mark Cuban, as one of the best owners in sports, will do that. Very cool story. And Mark Cuban and JJ Barea are my number one performers of the week. All right, that was episode eight. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, make sure you continue to subscribe and follow. Follow me on social media as well. And stay tuned for more, more episodes uh, coming soon. NBA preseason starts tomorrow on Friday. Should be fun. Lakers Clippers. We have a college football this Saturday. We've got the NFL on Sunday. Uh, baseball, we heard the, the hot stove is starting to heat up a little bit. Some some deals have been signed recently, including this one that I was talking about before with the Mets. Uh, that's That's probably coming up rather soon. So sports is really in full swing now. Thank God. Hockey will be back in a month. So sports are in full swing. And uh, I'm just happy that we have this back because it's been a rough 2020, obviously, for many people. And we're almost into the new year and things are starting to point upwards as we head into the winter. So enjoy the weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening.